welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, without any lead-in or setup, I'm going to ask you just to stand for a scripture reading. <clears throat> it comes today out of the book of Lamentations, and I'm going to be reading different verses from there, uh, 1 through 9, and then I'll read 16 through about 24. Now, this is Jeremiah the prophet who is writing these lamentations. Uh, We'll talk about it later. But he writes, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. Verse 16, he has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Real uplifting, encouraging, that first part, wasn't it? (laughs) Kind of gets you all happy and giddy just listening to that. I mentioned last week that this Choose Joy series was developed in response to a question asked by my 25-year-old daughter, Izzy, earlier in the summer. How do we find happiness in a world that is so often cold, mean, and painful? Not long ago, she drove to a Chick-fil-A parking lot near where she works, and she went there because it had been a difficult day for her, and she wanted space to sit and just clear her head. Now, in my opinion, a nice Chick-fil-A sandwich with waffle fries would have cleared it a lot better, but she opted to just sit in her car in the parking lot and listen to music to try to clear her head and find perspective. And as she was doing so, a grown man, at least in terms of age, pulled up in a pickup truck, got out, and as he walked into the restaurant, he sarcastically said to her, nice park job. Apparently she had parked her car ever so slightly crooked, but his car, oddly, wasn't anywhere near her car. He just felt called to name this great injustice in the world. So the guy went into the restaurant, Izzy kind of backed up and reparked, and when he came out, he walked over to her car 
and sarcastically said, well, that's better. And then he got in his truck and, Izzy being Izzy, she stared him down. And if you imagine she might have done a little bit more than that, you could be right. Well, then he yelled to her in his car with his windows up, mind you. Congratulations, you learned how to park. And with that, he sped off and on into his day. And here's the kicker, Izzy started to cry. In her words, she was bawling. Now, obviously, this isn't a world crisis. But for some of us, it is micro-experiences like this, enhanced by fires in Maui and floods in Libya and violence against innocent victims and starving children in various parts of the world that make us wonder, how do we authentically experience joy when there is so much anger and pain and suffering? And last week, we began this series by talking about choosing joy by slowing down and noticing the goodness of God scattered in all sorts of unlikely places instead of just hurrying through our day. Today's topic is grieving instead of scoffing. Now, grieving might sound like an odd prescription for joy, but to have any chance of authentic joy in this sinful and broken world, we must face the brokenness, step into the pain, feel the sting of the pain, and then pour out the raw emotion of our anger and confusion and pain to God and even to each other. Or put it this way, authentic joy is only possible for those who grieve the brokenness of their own soul and the very real brokenness of this world. So let's talk about a time to grieve. In the Lamentations passage I read just a second ago from Lamentations 3, a man named Jeremiah rants and complains against God. He grieves, as we're calling it today, because his life and his circumstances and his nation are a mess. It's around 586 BC, that's the year, and invaders from Babylon have come and conquered the nation of Israel, destroyed the city of Jerusalem and its magnificent temple. Multiple thousands of Jewish people have been raped and tortured and slaughtered in the invasion. Most of the survivors have been taken back to Babylon to live there in exile. And the prophet Jeremiah surveys the rubble that was once his life and city and nation, and he does not hold back. He pours out his pain without concern for the theological accuracy of his outpouring. We've got to get a picture of this guy seeing all this destruction and reaching down into his own raw and unfiltered emotion that has been triggered by this tragedy, and he pours it all out. He pours it out because these are his people, and this is his city. This is his God. And even though if we got into all the details, we'd find out it was the sin and the unrepentance of his people that brought all this on. Nonetheless, Jeremiah grieves, or as it is sometimes called, he laments. Rents James is a worship leader and an author, and she describes lament this way. As the majority of psalms reveal, 
A true lament complains loud and long to God with honesty that leaves no room for polite self-consciousness. Jeremiah laments in the passage. Let me reread a portion of it. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. And I'm just reading the PG rated stuff. The whole book of Lamentations, all five chapters, are Jeremiah's lamentations over what has happened. Grieving and lamenting are part of our faith journey. Grieving our own soul, grieving the state of who we are, grieving the state of the world, the brokenness of the world, grieving the fact that we live in a world where grown men who aren't so adultish yell at young women about the way they park their car. Grieving and lamenting are part of our faith journey. Job's wonderful life, as you may recall, suddenly unraveled, and he was hurting, and he was confused, and none of it made any sense to him. So he ranted, and he vented, and he poured out his guts to God and to his friends. Roughly 30% of the Psalms are lamenting Psalms by David and by many others. In Luke chapter 19, you may remember, Jesus is descending out of the Mount of Olives on the back of a donkey headed toward the city of Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. And when he saw the city, Luke tells us, he wept over it. He lamented. Because in rejecting him, they had sealed their fate and disaster would eventually come in the form of another conquering army with all the destruction. When Jesus was then suffering and dying on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22, one of the Psalms of lament, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of us know that sin, pain, suffering, and injustice are not Jeremiah's or Israel's or Jesus's or Izzy's story alone. Sin and the brokenness it causes leaves a mark on every last one of us. Let me say it this way. This world is not the way it is supposed to be. We are not the way that we are supposed to be. Everything is marred by sin and its brokenness and is less than what it was designed to be. Nothing is the way it is supposed to be. Not the government, not the church, not the sufferings of children, often not our bodies, sometimes not our marriage. The world is not the way it is supposed to be, and we are not the way that we are supposed to be. And one of the ultimate conundrums for Christ-following people is to live in the tension between the goodness and greatness of God and the suffering, disappointment, injustice, and pain of this life and this world. And many of us have stood right in the middle of these two pressure points, and we felt the unresolvable ache, and we have asked the unanswerable question, why? And all the best attempts to try 
and reconcile God's greatness and goodness with human pain sound really good in a book, but they rarely help when we are standing ourselves in that pool of pain. So what do we do? More specifically to this week in this series, how do we choose joy in this chaotic mess? Ecclesiastes 3 says, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. See, we choose joy by stepping all the way into our disappointments and our hurts. We step all the way into our sadness and our anger. And once we step all the way into it, and once we begin to feel the totality of it, we begin to pour it all out, raw, unedited, unfiltered. We grieve, we bawl, we lament for ourselves, for those who suffer, and for the world. And in doing this, we are following in the footsteps of many people who wrote psalms. We're following in the footsteps of Jeremiah and most of the prophets. We are following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, and we are following in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. Theologian N.T. Wright says, It is no part of the Christian vocation, then, to be able to explain what's happening and why. I'd like you to think of a situation where suffering, trouble, difficulty, pain, sin has jumped into the middle of your soul or your life. And here writes words again. It is no part of the Christian vocation, the Christian work, in other words, to be able to explain what's happening and why. He continues, in fact, it is part of the Christian vocation not to be able to explain and to lament instead. So, instead of just sermonizing about this, I've got more to say, but we'll come back to it in a minute. We thought instead of just sermonizing, it would be a good idea for us to grieve together, to lament together, lament over our sin, lament over the brokenness of the world, lament over the suffering of many in the world. And you might be wondering or you might be new and you're thinking to yourself, oh my, what did I walk into here? I was looking for some sugar. I was looking for a jolt of happiness. Well, here's my point. When we live in the actual world that we live in, the jolt of happiness and the burst of joy is readily available because of who God is, but we have to go through the grief in order for that joy to be real and not fake. And the way we go through the grief is through this thing the Bible calls lament. And this thing the Bible demonstrates called lamenting. <clears throat> so Lisa Schmidt is going to come and she's going to lead us in our community prayer. And our community prayer today is a prayer of lament. Lisa. Would you join me in prayer? Our good and merciful triune God, we confess that sometimes we can't see your goodness. 
There are people, your people, here this morning who are reeling from the loss of a loved one, grieving the death of a dream, facing the reality of an incurable diagnosis. Where is your goodness in that? The brokenness around us seems overwhelming. And we echo the words of David this morning. How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? Father, our world feels like it's crumbling around us. We move through the streets of Folsom and see people, people made in your image, living without safe shelter. There are children in our schools who do not have a safe space to go home to. Another friend has received a cancer diagnosis. A marriage is falling apart. We are struggling with addiction, overflowing with anger, and lost. How long, O oh Lord? Jesus, where are you when hurricanes, cyclones, fires, earthquakes ravage our planet? This beautiful world that you created for us. 97 people are dead in Maui and a town wiped out. 3,000 are dead in Morocco and over 10,000 are dead in Libya, with another 10,000 missing. We cannot even begin to comprehend these numbers, and yet you know each one intimately. Engage our imaginations and move our hearts to compassion rather than commentary. That we would interact with these casualties, not as news stories or statistics, but as our own flesh and blood, divine image bearers, irreplaceable individuals, whose losses will leave gaping holes in our homes, friendships, and neighborhoods. May we weep over the brokenness of this world as you wept over Jerusalem. How long, O oh Lord? Spirit, we live in a world filled with gun violence, racial injustice, and oppression. How do we reconcile this with your goodness? Mothers should not have to fear that their black sons will be shot if they ring the doorbell of the wrong house. Children should not have to participate in active shooter drills in school. Women should not have to worry about someone slipping something into their drink. This is not the way your world is supposed to be. Babies die of malnutrition. The maternal mortality rate for women of color in our country is two to three times higher than for white women. Elder abuse is on the rise. Economic inequality is increasing. And those in power continue to wield it against those without. But you have declared righteousness and justice to be the foundation of your throne. You are a defender of those on the margins, and we beseech you to do so now. May you also stir up in us hearts that see those that are often overlooked and a desire to work to undo wrongs. How long, O oh Lord? We, your people, seem to have lost the ability to even interact with, let alone love, 
those that are different. Your church has too often failed to demonstrate another way. We belittle, name-call, are full of greed, seek first to win arguments. The church historically has supported slavery, abuse, oppression of women, and a complete disregard for creation care. And yet you knew this would happen and chose the church anyway to be your witness in this world. For in the cross, you have shown that you are able to take even the very worst of circumstances and astound us with the greatest of good. Still we ask, how long, O Lord? Remind us again and again of your goodness, your presence, your promises. For this is who we are, a people of the promise, a people shaped in the image of the God whose very being generates all joy in the universe, yet who also weeps and grieves its brokenness. So we, your children, are also at liberty to lament our losses, even as we simultaneously rejoice in the hope of their coming restoration. Let us learn now, O Lord, to do this as naturally as the inhale and exhale of a single breath, to breathe out sorrow, to breathe in joy, to breathe out lament, to breathe in hope, to breathe out pain, to breathe in comfort, to breathe out sorrow, to breathe in joy, to breathe out joy. In one hand, we grasp the burden of our grief, while with the other, we reach for the hope of grief's redemption. And there, between the tension of the two, between what was and what will be, is the very is of now. Let our hearts be surprised by, shaped by, warmed by, remade by that same joy that forever wells within and radiates from your heart, O oh God. Let this be our heart's cry this morning. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Christ, our good King, amen. Let me suggest that what we just did is crucial, essential to experiencing joy in this life and in this world. There is no way to get to joy without going through grief. But what happens when we don't lament? What happens when we try to find another way? Let's talk for a minute about the way of the scoffer. When life hurts, when people say or do or don't say or do things that disappoint us, when institutions like the government, education, healthcare, marriage, or the church let us down, sin, fail to be what they should be, when people yell at us for an imperfect park job or we witness some other act of violence for a silly or petty reason, when inexplicable suffering occurs in Libya or Morocco or somewhere else in the world, the way we respond is crucial to our overall well-being. 
and to the ongoing health of our soul. See, when pain piles up from micro experiences at Chick-fil-A and from macro sufferings in our own families or around the world, people increasingly wonder if joy is possible. A little secret, perhaps many Christians keep to themselves, is a growing suspicion about God and whether he is as good as advertised. Because if he is, to the prayer Lisa just led us in, why is all this happening? Why does so much pain happen? Why is life so hard? Why does suffering seem to win more than it loses? Where you go with all this in your own inner world, where you go in response to these kinds of questions will slowly shape your soul and shape you into being a certain kind of person. Now remember, we're defining joy in this series as a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. So in the language of this series, we're talking about choosing the path that leads to a pervasive and constant sense of well-being, no matter our circumstances, and grieving. Lamenting is the path to choose in response to the pain and brokenness of this world. Because if we don't choose the way of grieving, there are only a few of other options to choose from, and none of them are any good. One option is to put blinders on and pretend the pain isn't real or it isn't a big deal or pretend the pain is the fault of them over there, but here I am and I'm fine. Whistling in the dark, it's called. But this all drives our feelings underground until they pop up later in some strange manner. Another option is to numb the pain with booze, or drugs, or Amazon, or television, or football. I had to say football. I mean, I just had to say it. Another option is to withdraw and isolate ourselves. Everything is awful. So we pull away, we withdraw, and we hunker down and isolate. One other option I want to expand on a bit is to become a scoffer, cynically critiquing people or institutions from a comfortable distance. Joy is impossible when scoffing is our strategy. When we were planning this series, we're trying to find the right word to capture the alternative to grieving, and Dave Holcomb brilliantly suggested the word scoffing. In the New American Standard Translation of the Bible, Psalm 1-1 says, Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Over the past seven years or so, give or take, at least from my perspective, which doesn't mean that what I'm about to say is true, but from my perspective, from my seat, an alarming number of professed Christ followers have opted to deal with the pain and brokenness of life and the world by sitting in the seat of a scoffer. Now, what does that mean? It means when hurt happens, when a person or institution disappoints, we pull away. We detach, which by itself may not be all that bad. Might even be necessary in some situations, like where there is abuse or intentional power overing. 
But not every hurt, not every disappointment warrants this kind of detachment. When we choose the way of the scoffer, we pull away and detach, and then bitterness and cynicism starts to grow. And in isolation, bitterness and cynicism grow fast. When we surround ourselves with only those who see it our way, bitterness and cynicism grows fast. When we only read or only listen to those who see it our way, bitterness and cynicism grows fast. Now, I know the way of the scoffer because I have sat in the seat of a scoffer. The scoffer is the one who stands away, stands apart, strokes their chin skeptically, cynically, bitterly, and arrogantly while critiquing and criticizing and shaking their head. So instead of a healthy grieving over the sufferings and failings and disappointments of their own soul and of others and of various institutions, the scoffer focuses on the failings and disappointments of others and of various institutions. Their own sins and their own failings and their own disappointments don't clue them into the overall pervasive brokenness of this world. Rather, they see with 20-20 vision the wrongs and the failings and the sins of others. And this drives them toward a kind of self-justified isolation that gets reinforced and strengthened by the next disappointment or the next failure, and the cycle keeps on spinning. I know the way of the scoffer because I have sat in the seat of a scoffer. And from my perspective, as our world continues to unravel, more and more are choosing the way of the scoffer, targeting all kinds of things, targeting God, the government, politics, marriage, friendship, men, women, capitalism, the church, the family, the police, the military, health care, education, on and on and on we could go. And let me say something with crystal clarity so there's no confusion. Every single one of these people and institutions I just mentioned, except God, regularly sins and fails and disappoints. We live in a broken world and this brokenness is not theoretical. It is painfully practical. So let me say it loud and clear. The stakeholders and the leaders of these various institutions need pushback. They need challenging voices that are poking and pushing and prophetically calling out the sins and the failures. There's no question about that. I'll speak of the church because it is my lane and it is a favorite target of those who scoff. The church has often failed and sinned and disappointed in how it has responded to injustice in our society and how it has promoted political idolatry and how it has used the Bible as a weapon and how it is greedy. <clears throat> and I could go on and on. See, we need to be reminded of the pain and hurt and suffering that our actions as individuals or a society or a nation or an institution like the church have caused, and we need people who are courageous enough to point these things out. But there is a way to do this, and scoffing is not the way to do it. 
Jeremiah, along with most of the other prophets, lamented and grieved the condition of his people and his nation. He and the other prophets grieved the condition of their people and their nation. And they did this with an acute awareness of their own failings and sins. Jeremiah was lamenting because he had sinned and his people had sinned. And now his city was destroyed and his nation was in exile. He wasn't lobbing grenades from the outside. He wasn't tossing out harsh critiques from a distance. Jeremiah was in it with his people. We might say Jeremiah was incarnationally with his people. He wasn't standing away from them. He grieved because he cared, and he cared because they were his people. And the nation of Israel was his nation, and he stood with and among them. When Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he did so because he loved the people who rejected him. They were his people, but they didn't want to be his people. And Jesus grieved this situation, and then he gave his life to save and heal the very people who did not want to be his people. There's this whole prophet idea, image, picture that might be emerging. It is in my mind. Richard Rohr calls the prophet's platform the edge of the inside. This might get a little thick. Take a sip of coffee because I think this is important. Richard Rohr calls the, the, the prophet's platform the edge of the inside. It's a good phrase. He writes this. The unique and rare position of a biblical prophet is always on the edge of the inside. The prophet is not an outsider throwing rocks or an insider comfortably defending the status quo. Instead, the prophet lives precariously with two perspectives held tightly together. In this position, one is not ensconced safely inside nor situated so far outside as to lose compassion or understanding. See, the scoffer, as we're talking about it here, is not on the edge of the inside. They are on the edge of the outside or even at the center of the outside. The prophet Jonah, for example, was bitter and critical of God and of Nineveh. He saw himself as other than the Ninevites. So he wanted to stay away, decarnate, separate from, not in the flesh, out of the flesh, and just sit back and scoff at them and how rotten they were. I'll say it again, biblical joy is impossible, impossible, impossible for the one who chooses the way of scoffing. I've chosen the way of scoffing. I've sat in the seat of the scoffer and joy is the furthest thing from your soul when you sit there. If Izzy were to allow it, the angry guy at Chick-fil-A could add an infection in her soul. And if she allows it, she could move a bit closer to cynicism and anger and bitterness over the pathetic state 
of the human person. Add a few more experiences like this, throw on a senseless killing somewhere or a few natural disasters, and Izzy could start to slowly retreat from the human experience and justify it because, quote, humanity sucks. And this is happening with people all over the place. But the way of scoffing will rob us of joy and fill us with cynicism and pride. And it's one thing for that to happen individually. But when that creeps into the Christian community, we wonder why no one's interested. It's because we have embodied and incarnated the very things that we claim to be against. Anger, violence, rage, hatred. And yet we embody it when we move toward being a scoffer. So I'll finish by talking about joy and grief. James 1, verses 1 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is one of the places in the Bible where trials difficulties and suffering are linked with joy. Odd combination, but this isn't the only place where we find this. Let's call it the lifelong dance of joy and grief. Partners on the floor, dancing together throughout our lives. You may have heard of whistling in the dark. I mentioned it a few moments ago. Whistling in the dark, head down, pretending all is well when all is far from well, avoiding the pain, minimizing the pain, numbing ourselves from the pain, acting like it really doesn't hurt that bad, whistling in the dark. I want to introduce you to whistling in the light. Authentic joy that is shaped and strengthened and deepened by the dance with authentic grief. Whistling in the light. Authentic grief that is shaped and strengthened and deepened by the dance with authentic joy. A pervasive and constant sense of well-being with an honest recognition of what is. Why? Because the Lord is God and there is no other. Jeremiah, right in the middle of his lament, he's not even close to being done. Right in the middle of his lament, uh, chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, he says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This is joy and grief dancing. This is awful, God. This is wrong, God. Where are you, God? Why, God? And yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Do you see this? Grief is out on the dance floor dancing by itself, and it saunters over and says to joy, will you dance with me? This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. See, if Jeremiah didn't genuinely grieve 
and we read those words only, it would sound fake. The cities in ruins, the temples destroyed, people have been raped and violated, and now they're being led off into exile. And Jeremiah is saying, because of God's great love, we're not consumed. Really? We look consumed to me. His compassions never fail. You're kidding, right? This is compassion? They're new every morning. They weren't new this morning when they came barging in. Great is your faithfulness, you sure? I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. No, I say to myself, the Lord needs to be on trial. Therefore, I'll wait for him. No thanks, I'll find an alternative. If he didn't genuinely grieve, it would all sound so fake. Religious phoniness. But because he grieved, he was able to dig through all of the pain and all of those emotions, and he found God and the goodness of God in the grief when he went through it, the lifelong dance of joy and grief. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem on his ride into it. He wept in the garden of Gethsemane before his arrest and crucifixion. You remember it well. Take this away, God. I don't want this. He lamented on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Hebrews 12, verses 2 to 3 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let grief and joy dance together throughout your lives. Ecclesiastes 3, weep and laugh. Mourn and dance. Or in Paul's beautiful words in 2 Corinthians 6.10, speaking of himself and all who traveled with him, this little phrase, he's describing himself and them, and he says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Do you see this? The authentic, real, vibrant, winsome way for followers of Jesus to choose joy in a ridiculously broken world is to be sorrowful, yet rejoicing. Grieve, but choose joy. And we choose joy when we name the pain and pour it out and recognize this world is not the way it is supposed to be. Adults who never grew up yell at us about parking spots in this world. Children suffer. Bodies break down. Earthquakes and fires and wars destroy people. Marriages fall apart. The church sins in a multitude of ways. And through it all, above it all, in the middle of it all, God is still good. He is Lord. And there is no other. And he is at work. And because he's a good God, we can choose joy. We can ex experience it today. This pervasive sense, pervasive and constant sense of well-being, even when everything is a mess. A few weeks ago, our granddaughter was at our house, and she was sitting on my lap on a pillow. Kind of had her feet up here, and her head was down there. And I was looking at her, making some silly noises, and my mouth, moving my mouth in some ridiculous way. And right as I was doing this, she looked at me, and I immediately knew. She was looking at me differently than she had 
three seconds before. She was looking into me. I could feel it, literally feel it. I'll never forget it. Our eyes locked up. And as I'm staring into her eyes and she's staring into my eyes, she flashed a few grins from the corner of her mouth. And she kept looking like she really saw me. And I kept looking because I could see that she really saw me. We were looking into each other's souls. I know this sounds dramatic, like the lead into some television show, but it was actually happening. And this lasted for a few minutes. And in those few minutes, nothing else in the world mattered to me. And nothing, nothing, nothing will ever take that away. I was crying with joy. Grief was dancing with joy. Why grief? Because the world is hard and she's going to find out. Why grief? Because her world is going to be even more chaotic, I imagine, than my world. Why was grief dancing with joy? Because there's going to come a time when some guy's going to say to her, nice park job. There's going to come a time when someone's going to say to her, I don't want to be your friend. And who knows what else? Grief. Joy. She's going to live in a world where things are going to happen all around the globe. And they might weigh on her and make her wonder if there's any reason to choose joy. But in that moment, everything went to the side and there was just this pure joy. And it was real. And it was more real because I know that I have failed and disappointed in my years on this planet. It was more real because I know this world is hard. It was more real because I know suffering is real and she's going to experience it in her life. But joy is also real. And joy is more joyous because of the reality of the grief. So we go through the grief and we stand in it, and we lament, and we grieve. And through that, the Holy Spirit of God brings joy, and joy and grief dance together for the rest of our lives. Would you pray with me, please? I recognize this has not been real easy. And I knew when this series came, I saw this one coming once we got it straightened out. And I've been uh, carrying this for a couple weeks. I'm not sure all the reasons why. I got a few, but they don't matter. I just want to keep saying it. It's a hard world. You know it. There's a lot of grief. And because of Jesus Christ, because of King Jesus, there's a lot of joy. Because Jesus is Lord and there is no other, there is a lot of joy. Well-being through all the circumstances. And I simply want to keep putting this forth that we do not shy away from the deeper water of this thing called faith. Because if anything, our world 
desperately needs to see a group of people who are animated by God's spirit, who are fully alive to his presence, and who are learning that when he is in the mix, incredible, powerful, head-spinning, upside-down realities occur within us and through us. So I'm going to leave you before we sing together with this little verse in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. And we're saying this through the grief, in the grief, with the grief. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. I keep thinking of that Chick-fil-A parking lot. You've been in a thousand of these situations, so have I. I've been that guy. And I've been where Izzy was, and so have you, probably been both. Those little moments aren't little. They affect us at our core. And if we're the type of people who carry this world and it feels heavy, we need the Spirit of God to remind us of joy, to help us choose joy. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Heavenly Father, thank you for the piercing way that your word will get to us if we open up to it. Help us to follow Jesus in your footsteps and grieve with joy. Help us to follow you in the steps of Paul, sorrowful with rejoicing. Help us to follow in the footsteps of Jeremiah. My soul is downcast, yet I call this to mind. You are king and there is no other. Fill us with hope and fill us with joy, we pray in Christ's name.